Matthew 10, 34. Let's read, then we'll pray, then we'll dig into God's word. Here we go. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for Jesus who lived and died and rose again to call us your sons and daughters. God, I pray that you would open up our minds our ears, our hearts. God, speak to us, convict us of sin, encourage us, help us to grow in likeness to Jesus. God, I also pray that you would fill me with your spirit this morning. God, as I am a broken instrument, God, I pray that you would be glorified uh, in and through a weak and broken instrument. And I pray that you would bring your word to your people, um, that we might glorify you by how we uh, respond in our hearts and in our lives this week. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, for uh, starting last week and uh, here in the month of October, we're walking through a series called Haunting the Words of Jesus That Scare Us. It's October, isn't it? It's that uh, month of the year we like to get a little scared. And so what's the scariest thing of all? Well, there are some words of Jesus that ought to scare us. Uh, Over this last week, I thought a little bit about some other words that scare me. And uh, I thought of three little words that sometimes get uttered in my household that actually scare me near to death. I wonder if you can guess what they are. You probably can't. Three little words that get uttered in my household that scare me half to death. The words are these. Levi, baby, powder. I will show you why. That's why. Right there. That's Levi. He is, uh, he is uh, our third of four children, and uh, he's about two years old right now. And ever since the time that he could walk, he has found a way to find the baby powder no matter where it is. Even if he has to climb up a bookshelf or in the closet or however he is, he finds it. And if you hear all of a sudden in our house that the room gets quiet, no voices, but you hear the door close, that's Levi in his bedroom taking that baby powder and just going like that. And that's, uh, that's what he looks like afterwards. So... Those words tend to scare me. Uh, But we're looking this morning at some other words, words of Jesus that scare us. Uh, These words are sometimes called some of the hard sayings of Jesus. There are some gentler sayings of Jesus. I think the gentler sayings of Jesus are a lot like a piece of chocolate, right? Uh, There's some sweet words of Jesus that you put them on your tongue and they sort of melt in your mouth, right? They get soft right away. You can sort of bite right through them. But then there are other sayings of Jesus, like the ones that we're looking at this morning, that we call the hard sayings of Jesus. They're a lot less like a piece of chocolate and a lot more like a jawbreaker, right? If you were to try to bite right through them, devour them in an instant, they would probably break your teeth, right? You'd be set for a a trip to the dentist, right? A jawbreaker, you've got to have it in your mouth for a long time, right? You've You've got to suck on it and let it dissolve and let it digest slowly. And over the course of time, you taste the different flavors. And in the same way, I think the hard sayings of Jesus are that way. If we try to digest them in a moment like a piece of chocolate, boy, they're going to break our teeth, right? They hurt. But over the course of a lifetime, 
we chew on them and we chew on them and we find all kinds of different life applications and ways that they speak to us and show us how to follow Jesus, not just in a moment, but over the course of a life, a lifetime. So let me ask the question, what makes this passage one of those hard sayings? What makes this passage so haunting, so hard to chew? I think uh, one very simple answer is that this passage speaks of a sword, right? Anytime you talk about Jesus coming at you with a sword, that's kind of a scary thing, isn't it? To have somebody with a sword come into your home and against your family is a terrifying thing. And really, that's what Jesus talks about in this passage, isn't it? Jesus comes into our homes, into our households, and he bears a sword. We're going to hear a little bit about uh, what that actually means as we walk through this passage, but I think that's one of the reasons that this is a hard or haunting passage of Jesus. Another reason, I think, is that this passage seems contradictory, doesn't it? You've probably heard, you've probably heard Jesus referred to as the Prince of Peace, if you ever ask somebody, uh, Christian or not, what they think of Jesus, they, they probably talk to you about a couple of words like love and peace, right? That might be how Jesus is described. And yet this passage says that Jesus bears the sword, the very symbol of war. Finally, I think there might be some people in the room this morning that they're saying, boy, this is not a hard saying of Jesus. This is a piece of cake. I already don't like my family, <laughs> especially that bit about the in-laws, piece of cake, right? I hear the awkward laughs, right? You guys are nearby to family. You don't want to laugh too loud. That makes it awkward. Hopefully that's not the case uh, in your situation, though. I'm sure for some of you it, uh, it, it probably is. As we hear Jesus speak this morning, here is uh, the main idea that I think we're going to hear from Jesus this morning. The main idea is this, that Jesus demands and offers an all-consuming Love. Jesus both demands and offers an all-consuming kind of love. We're going to walk through this text and through that idea in three main points. So let's, let's get started. Here we go. Number one, there is only one level of Christian. There is only one level of Christian. Look with me at the text, uh, verses 37 to 39. Let's look at these words in specific. Here we go. Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Did you hear the word that was repeated four times in this passage? Whoever, 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 whoever. Jesus doesn't set two different standards for Christians. Jesus doesn't say, hey, there's higher demands for some and there's lower demands for others. You find uh, where it fits you. Jesus says, whoever would follow me, this is the demand. This is the level. There are not multiple levels of Christians. Jesus is an equal opportunity offender, isn't he? Discipleship is hard. Discipleship demands our all. I think there's a popular belief uh, that there are multiple levels of Christianity, that there's kind of the regular Christians, and then there's like those, those crazy sold-out, born-again type Christians. I've kind of heard that idea shared uh, time and again. I remember uh, when I worked, uh, uh, I worked for eight years doing hardwood floors while I was in, co in college and in seminary. 
And those guys knew that I was training to become a pastor. And so they would think of me as sort of, I was, some of them called themselves Christians. And then there was John, who was kind of the crazy Christian, right? Man, that, that crazy guy, he goes to church every week. Well, he reads his Bible, but he wants to tell other people about Jesus. That stuff's crazy. I'm just one of those regular run-of-the-mill Christians who doesn't do that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, the statistics even bear this out. Barna survey recently, of people who call themselves, excuse me, <clears throat> People who call themselves church-going Christians, they ask them, well, when was the last time you went to church, if you're a church-going Christian? Only 46% of them said that they went to church last week. 13% of them said that they had been to church in the last month. And over 25% of them said that it had been more than a year since setting foot in the church. Church-going Christians. So I think the idea is pervasive that there might be different standards, different levels, the regular Christians, and then there's the, the crazies over here. But this isn't how Jesus sees it. For Jesus, discipleship is not optional. Everyone who would follow Jesus is called to be sold out, born again, devoted, devout, zealous, passionate, extremist, whatever label you want to put on it. Jesus says, those are the requirements of being my disciple. You're all in or you're out. You're hot or you're cold. You're not lukewarm. Not an option. The question that uh, I think Jesus has for us this morning is this. Are we making excuses for a, le a lesser level of relationship with Christ? Are we making excuses? Now, let me be clear. If you're in the room this morning and you are a newer Christian, Maybe you're just starting to grow and you are, you are in hot pursuit, taking steps towards a deeper relationship with Jesus. Praise God for that. This is really not a challenge to you. This is a challenge to those of us in the room this morning who have decided that we're going to settle. Those of us in the room this morning who have said, well, I'm, gonna, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, yep, but I'm going to settle for a lower level than Jesus demands. Yeah, that going to church on a regular basis kind of stuff. Yeah, that, man, reading the Bible on your own, really? Uh, that evangelism stuff, telling other people about Jesus, that world mission stuff, whether we should go or we should pray for people or we should contribute some money. Uh, boy, that stuff just seems kind of wild. Jesus begs the question this morning, are you making excuses to do what I really called you to do? Are you settling for less than Jesus demands? Every disciple is called to give Jesus our all. Jesus demands an all-consuming kind of love. Number two. Number two uh, point we see in this text this morning is this. Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus himself is the end. Let's take a look at uh, the specific examples that Jesus lays out in the text of how to be a disciple. Uh, I see basically three, three sort of areas of life that Jesus talks about. The first uh, call that Jesus has for us is this. He says, love me more than your family. Look at uh, verses 35 and following. Verse 35, I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a person's enemies are those of his own house. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That one strikes us hard, doesn't it? I think people, especially in our area in West Michigan, we value family. I think that's a good thing. But this strikes us hard. I think especially of Jesus' original audience, I think of ancient Near Eastern people. If we think we valued family, man, they valued family even more than we do. Often three or four generations living under the same roof or at least on the same piece of property. Right? These people were all about family. 
Jesus in, uh, in, the, in the Gospel of Luke actually says it in a way that's a little bit harsher. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all recordings of uh, Jesus' actions and words. And here's the way Luke records it. He says, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Strong words. So let's be clear. Jesus is pro-family, right? Jesus created the family. Jesus has a lot of strong words for husbands and wives and parents and children. Jesus is pro-family. We've talked just in the last few weeks about God's call on Peace Church to be a family-focused church. I dare say that following Jesus and following the Bible will actually result in a healthier family because you'll be doing family according to God's design. And yet, Jesus is clear that Jesus is not a means to some other end. Jesus will not be used to get a happy and a healthy family. Jesus will not be used as a way to get something else. We love Christ first, and his gifts come as a bonus. A happy and healthy family is a gift of God. Praise God for it. Don't be ashamed of it. But our love... Our greatest treasure is always to be Jesus. He needs to be first. In fact, some may even be called to endure family strife as a result of following Jesus. Some may be called to actually be divided from family members as a result of following Jesus. I think of a story I once heard R.C. Sproul tell. R.C. Sproul is a pastor, theologian, had a huge influence on on my life. Uh, He tells the story of when he went off to college and he got saved. He heard the gospel and he became saved. And he went home to tell his mom, thinking mom was going to be so excited. Mom always went to church. Mom's going to be so happy for me. And he, he remembers going home and telling her, mom, I got saved. And her response was, what in the world do you mean you got saved? You grew up in a Christian house, boy. Mom was not happy. Mom grew up taking R.C. to a church that uh, we would put in the category, uh, I'm not a huge fan of labels, but just, just to throw a label at it, they would call it a, a progressive Christian church, a church that doesn't believe in the supernatural, that didn't believe miracles actually happened, that didn't, didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead, that believed that these were great morals to teach us how to have good behavior. And so mom was pretty mad when R.C. said, man, I got saved. I believe now that Jesus really did die to take away my sins. Jesus really did come out of the grave and resurrect. And I really will one day spend eternity with him. Caused division in his family. Maybe you've heard stories of people who have become Christians out of Muslim homes in Muslim countries. We hope and pray that people who are Muslims come to meet Jesus and receive salvation. But we know that it brings great pain Right? They are cast out of the family. In some cases, they are pursued to be killed. It's a big deal to change allegiances and become a Christian. Sometimes it causes division in the home. So I'll tell you what, when Jesus says this about a sword in the family, it strikes me pretty hard. Because I remember the moment when I came to care about family in a whole new way. I always cared about my family. I was always protective of my family. And yet, I remember sitting uh, in, a, in a doctor's office 20 weeks into a pregnancy and hearing those words, it's a girl. I remember it changed everything for me. 
All right, there was a new level of concern that I had never imagined I could have for another human being. I didn't know I was going to get up in the middle of the night just to check and make sure they were still breathing and things like that. Didn't know I could care that much. And yet Jesus says, the gospel is a sword. My word is a sword. Some of you in the room this morning have felt the pain of being divided from a family member. Some of you in the room this morning have a child who grew up in a Christian home and right now they are not walking with the Lord. And that is a pain, a pain that goes deep in the heart. Some of you are here this morning and you're here by yourself and you're going to go home later today to a husband, a wife, a mom, a dad who do not appreciate and do not approve of the fact that you went to a Christian church this morning. You feel what Jesus has to say about division in the family. Maybe some of you, you're the only one in your friend circle or in your family who's trying to follow Jesus. And every conversation about life values, every conversation about what movie we're going to go and see, it's an opportunity for you to feel the division, the difference between you and them, to have awkward conversations. Jesus demands an all-consuming, costly kind of love. But at the very same time, listen to this, at the very same time, Jesus offers an all-consuming kind of love. I think of the words that Jesus says, Seek me first, and all these things will be added unto you. Go therefore and make disciples, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. Come to me, All you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Seek me and you will find me. The door will be opened to you. Jesus demands an all-consuming kind of love, but Jesus also offers an all-consuming kind of love. Let's take a look at the second uh, area of life or second example that Jesus gives where this applies. Jesus says, love me more than your comfort. Look at uh, verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is pretty closely related to the next one, so I'm going to go ahead and put that up as well. Love me more than your life is the next thing Jesus says. Verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus attacks the idols of everybody, doesn't he? He does it. Uh, we said earlier, he's an equal opportunity offender. He doesn't leave everybody, anybody alone. Right? Jesus goes after the traditional family. Right? The traditional culture that values family so much. And Jesus says, following me might mean division even from your family. Family is good, but it doesn't come first. Jesus only comes first. He attacks that idol. On the other side, Jesus comes to modern Western culture and he attacks that idol, the idol of self, right? Those of us who say, well, I'm going to put myself, my own comfort, my own making a life for myself. I'm going to put that above everything. Jesus says, no, no, no. I have to be first, always first. Jesus attacks the idols of all kinds of cultures. One of the interesting things about the cross is that if you were a person in ancient Rome and you saw somebody carrying a cross, a criminal or whoever, there's a question you would not ask yourself. 
will I see that person tomorrow at the grocery store? Right? You would not ask that question because you know that once a cross is taken up, it is not put back down. Right? A cross is final. A cross is ultimate. Once a cross is taken, there is no, well, I'll carry this until, or, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do this unless... Or, hey, let me, let me take care of this stuff first, and then I'll grab the cross. Just you guys hold on. There's no, hey, give me a cushion because this thing's kind of heavy. Right? Once a cross is taken, it is final and it is ultimate. It's the last thing a person will ever do. Last thing a person will ever do. I want to ask a question as we seek to apply this to our lives When you think of Jesus, which one of these two words resonates the most in your heart? Duty or delight? When you think of Jesus, just think for a moment. Which one of these words resonates? Duty or delight? We often talk about putting Christ first in our lives. I think that's a great thing. That's a a good, clear, simple way to talk about it. And yet it misses one of the words that Jesus uses in this passage. I look at verse 37, and Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus uses that key word, love. Jesus himself, when he talks about going to the cross, he doesn't just talk about duty and obedience. He is obeying his father, but he doesn't just talk about duty and obedience. He talks about love. He talks about the joy that was set before him. That's why he endured the cross. Jesus offers us an all-consuming kind of love, a kind of love that made him give every day of his life, a kind of love that gave him, made him give his life ultimately on the cross, the kind of love that led him to conquer sin and death and hell and Satan for us. Jesus offers that kind of love, and he requires that kind of love. Jesus says, in my presence, there is fullness of joy. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the kind of love that Jesus offers. There's a third point that I see in this passage. Christians cannot or are not able to pursue peace at any price. Christians are not able to pursue peace at any price. Listen to the words of verse 34, our our main verse or our opening verse this morning. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword, right? The very symbol of war, the very symbol of not peace, symbol of destruction. This is what Jesus says he came to bring. Makes me think of a passage from the Old Testament. It makes me think of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 6 and 8. Jeremiah talks about the prophets, the false prophets of his day who said, peace, peace, when there was no peace, right? In Jeremiah's day, he was the good prophet and he was calling God's people to repent. He was saying, you're living in sin. You need to turn from your sin and follow the Lord. And there were false prophets in the day saying, no, 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 that's mean. That's really harsh. Jeremiah, what a, what a, what a not nice preacher. Can't believe he would say something like that. Peace, peace, things are great. God loves you. And Jeremiah said, Because God loves us, he calls us to repent, to turn from sin. We can't say peace when there is no peace. I think of what uh, 
Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer said, and uh, let me read this to you and I'll explain it. To the extent that anyone gives up the mentality of antithesis, he has moved over to the other side. That word antithesis looks like a, a complex word, but it's a simple idea. The word antithesis means that if you affirm this, you can't also affirm its opposite. That if I say the Bible is true, I can't also say the Bible is not true in the same way and at the same time. If I say this pulpit is brown, colors are tricky because you have multiple colors. Let's just go with me. If, if I say the pulpit is brown in the same breath at the same time, I can't say this pulpit is pink, right? The law of non-contradiction, those two things can't happen at the same time in the same way. That's what the idea of antithesis says. And Francis Schaeffer, writing years ago, sort of prophetically, said that the church may be losing this idea of antithesis, that if we believe this, we can't at the same time believe this over here. Our ancestors, the early church leaders and fathers who wrote some of the earliest church confessions, ones that we read sometimes when we do Lord's Supper or we do baptisms, uh, great, great statements of what the Bible says. The early church fathers who wrote the confessions, they wrote both affirmations and denials. Things that they affirmed, we do believe this and we don't believe this. Those were contained in confessions. And let me tell you something. The early church fathers were not martyred for what they affirmed. The early church fathers were murdered for what they denied. The early church fathers lost their lives for the things that they stood against. They stood on God's word, and when somebody told them to move, they said, no, you move. I think of the reformer Martin Luther, who stood in a room under persecution. He was on trial in front of a whole bunch of people, and he was going to be excommunicated from the church, and he was also going to be killed. And they said, recant, repent, take back these things that you've been teaching. You've been teaching people can be saved through faith in Jesus alone, they don't also need works and stuff like that. And Martin Luther said, my conscience is bound by the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. Help me, God. Makes me think also of what Titus says in chapter 1 when he's talking to pastors and elders and church leaders. He says, they are called not only to teach the truth of God's word, but to rebuke those who contradict it. Some of you may remember uh, some sermons that I preached this summer uh, through the series of Jonah. And you might be thinking, boy, this seems like a little bit different from what John was saying in, in Jonah. In, in the book of Jonah, we talked about how every human being is made in God's image. And when we, even when we disagree with somebody, we have to treat them with love and respect. Let me tell you, that's still true but the Bible has this awesome way of it hits us on one side and then it comes around and it hits us on the other side, right? So the Bible tells us, hey, every human being is made in God's image. You have to teach them, treat them with love and respect. Boom, hits us on this side. And then he comes around and he says, but you also got to stand for truth, right? And he hits us on the other side. This is kind of one of those moments. So no, you and I are not called to be jerks. No, you and I are not called to fight about every little thing. But yes, we are called to stand for truth. The church is built on the foundation of truth. I, uh, I once, uh, as a pastor, you get to preach at other churches every once in a while. And uh, I once got to, got to go and preach at another church, uh, ways away from here, not nearby. Don't try to guess which one. I went to go preach at another church. And uh, after preaching a sermon that was kind of somewhere along these lines, I had uh, one of the elders, one of the church leaders come up to me afterwards. And he said something to me that I'll never forget. 
he looked at me and he said, Pastor, I feel like as an elder, I'm supposed to lead the church to do what the Bible says, but I'm also supposed to lead the church to be united, to have peace. And he said, I feel like my primary responsibility is to make sure the church is united and has peace. He, he literally held up his hands like this and, and did this. Unity and peace over the Bible. I remember looking at him and saying to him, brother, unity and peace do not come at the expense of the Bible. Unity and peace only come through the Bible. Unity and peace only come through the truth. Does Jesus want his church to be united and to have peace? Absolutely. Absolutely. But how? The answer is around this sword, around the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. That's how Jesus calls his church to be united. Not to, uh, not to brag, but uh, just to show a little bit of a contrast. Uh, it's such a joy to be a part of Peace Church, and I'm so honored to serve with the staff that we have. So, again, not to brag, but just to, just to, just to show you some conversations that we have as a staff. I remember last summer or the summer before in our staff retreat, we were talking about some vision for the coming years, and we were doing, spending some time around the whiteboard, and I remember having a conversation about, about unity, and I remember Pastor Ryan standing at the whiteboard and saying, is there anything, is there any, any reason we would ever forsake unity? I remember everybody kind of pausing for a moment, and I remember uh, one of our younger staff members raising their hand and saying, well, for truth, I remember everybody going, oh, well, yeah, 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 of course, for truth, but nothing else. And I remember just smiling at the simplicity of how easily our, 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 I looked around and I see these leaders in our church just so easily affirm, well, of course, of course, truth must come first. Of course, truth is the only foundation on which unity can build, be built. Of course, we would have war over truth, but nothing else. I just, I, it, it gave me such joy and a smile. That does not happen by accident. It does not happen easily. It happens through tears and sweat and blood. That sword is a symbol of bloody battle done for the truth. Brothers and sisters, I hope and I pray that this church is not just faithful while you and I are here. I've got four little kids between six and one, and I hope and I pray that this church remains faithful as they become adults and as their kids become adults. I hope that this church remains faithful as they baptize their kids and their kids baptize their kids in future generations. Questions for us to ask ourselves. Two, where do you need to break ranks with those around you? And the second one follows closely. Are you standing on the right foundation? I'll start with the second question. If you're going to stand for something, make sure it's the right thing, right? Uh, if you're going to stand for something, if you're going to hold a sword, if you're going to divide over something, make sure you're standing on the right thing. Be sure that it's not your own opinion. Be sure that it's the truth of God's word. This is what we stand on. And if you are standing on the truth of God's word, then you've got to ask yourself the question. If my friends and family are going a different direction, where do I need to go a different direction? Where do I need to maybe have an awkward conversation, right? We don't, you know, in this area, we've got family, we've got friends. We really like to have big Thanksgiving dinners and Christmas dinners and Easter. And man, it gets awkward when you call out your family on stuff, right? What are you, what are you not supposed to talk about? Religion and politics. What are we talking? We're talking about religion. Politics is pretty pervasive, right? I mean, if you're going to, if you believe in truth, 
you're going to have some awkward conversations sometimes. You've got to be willing to break ranks with those close to you. Let me bring us back to our main idea. Our main idea this morning is this, that Jesus demands and he offers an all-consuming kind of love. The sword uh, that has joined us up here for the sermon, the sword actually has a story with it. The sword, the sword uh, means a lot to me. The sword was actually given to me as a gift from this church. Uh, some of you may know I actually have a bit of a history with Peace Church. Uh, I, I had the privilege of growing up in this church as a kid. Then I went off and served in student ministry in some other churches during college. I came back to serve as an intern here for four years during seminary, went away again to be a pastor in two other churches, and now I get to come back. When I served here as an intern during seminary, at the very end of those four years, I stood in this room on a stage, and the pastors of this church gave me this sword. And I want to just share with you the words that they read over me. I asked them for a copy afterwards. I want to remember these words. Here's what they said. They were talking about the gifts that God had given me, and they said this, but before any of these things can even begin to matter, there's one prerequisite for any man who would be called pastor. You must be a man who treasures God's word. You need to have a powerful conviction that apart from Scripture, you have nothing to give that's worth taking. You must know deep down in your bones that this book is the only storehouse with the seed that can produce everlasting fruit in the lives of God's people. You must be a man who has no doubt that in the warfare of ministry, this book, not your own cleverness, will be the weapon that can save souls. This book alone will penetrate hearts. This book alone will bring conviction. And this book alone will silence the tongue of Satan who seeks to lead your flock astray through deception. In the years of being a pastor since receiving this sword in this church, I used to be a pastor in a couple other places, and I'll tell you what, the sword of God's word has brought division. The sword of God's word has brought pain and hurt. It has not always brought peace. And yet, my prayer for you would be that all of us can look back on those times that God's word has brought division and say, the things that the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The Apostle Paul looked at the pain that he had went through, the division, the separation, the war, and he said, compared to having Christ, nothing. My prayer for all of us is that we would feel that same way. Jesus demands an all-consuming love, but he also offers an all-consuming love. In his presence is joy forevermore. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus both demands and he offers an all-consuming kind of love. And it is worth it. Amen? Would you please stand with me? Let's pray to close. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your word. 
God, we thank you for the truth that you give us. You have spoken to us. God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. Please help us to hold fast to your word, even when it hurts. And God, I pray that, uh, God, I pray that we would know in our hearts the joy that we have because of your love for us. You don't just give demands. You also offer us infinite love. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.